Hi, you're listening to What's the Schemata, a schema therapy podcast for therapists. With ISST accredited schema therapy supervisors and trainers, Chris Hayes and Rob Brockman. For more information on schema therapy, visit our website, schematherapytraining.com. Hi, welcome to What's the Schemata. This is a specialist podcast for those that want to learn a bit more about schema therapy. And um, if you're interested in learning some schema therapy online, look at our website, www.schematherapytrainingonline.com. And Rob, um, we're here uh, together with Susan Simpson, who's one of our esteemed colleagues in, and actually pretty, well, a very good friend of both of ours. We um, kind of feel like this is a, the schema therapy uh, staff room. Yeah, uh, schema therapy training staff room. So maybe we'll get some. This is a very that. special what's the schemata. This is uh, the staff room I wish I had here yeah. at my clinic where I could just uh, hang out with Chris and Susan and, and talk shop about schema. Yeah, so we're just hanging out with Susan. So we'll just introduce to everyone Susan. Susan is based in uh, Scotland. She's um, you probably noticed from her accent, she doesn't sound very Scottish because she's from Australia. Uh, she's a clinical psychologist there and she's um, spent a lot of your career, Susan, you know, basically tailoring schema therapy to work with clients with eating disorders and you've got your book out, Schema Therapy for Eating Disorders, which came out last year and we just wanted to welcome you to our staff room. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having me here today. It's, I'm delighted to be joining you and and uh, it's just like old times when we're all in australia yeah. together so or bali kind of pretend <laughs> or bali yeah absolutely so if the listener can get an idea we're sitting around in lounges in our schema staff room and i'm just going to get a get a coffee for everyone i've got mine Anyone i've got mine thank you yes please <laughs> Decaf cappuccino for me, please. Right, okay. I'm just on the machine now. <laughs> so, so uh, look, let's get started. Um, Susan, you know, I, I've, I've got to say off the bat, I really loved your book, um, the, the book that you did with Evelyn uh, Smith on uh, schema therapy for eating disorders. I think it's a great contribution. Um, like everything that, that, you, that you do, you do it with a certain precision, uh, which I, I do, a part of me really appreciates. Um, and especially with such a, a topic like eating disorders that, that is really complicated and complex. Um, I think, you know, all the schema therapists um, in the world thinking about eating disorders um, were breathing a sigh of relief when we saw the book and how, you know, how detailed it is and, and how many strategies and perspectives and also bringing together, um, you know, a range of perspectives from, from other authors. Um, so I thought, you know, it was, it's, a, it's a great contribution. And so I hope to capture some of that today uh, in the podcast. But... Uh, the first question that, that I really have um, is, uh, how did you fall into this? It's a personal question. You know, um, eating disorders are such a difficult sort of, you know, area to, to work in, in a way. And you've become the sort of go-to person in the schema community, if I can say. Um, and you've really been thinking about this a lot. Um, how did you fall into, into sort of spending a lot of your waking hours thinking about eating disorders? That's a very good question, Rob. And I, I think uh, it's difficult to actually pinpoint exactly when I guess I gravitated into eating disorders, uh, into working in this client group, but I've always had an interest. 
Uh, and I think to some extent, of course, it's a, as you say, it's a, a very difficult uh, client group to work with. And, and there are a lot of stuck points in working with this client group. But at the same time, most people with eating disorders are very, I guess, bright, sensitive, highly empathic uh, people. And there's also something very uplifting in, uh, about working with this population and um, I guess seeing people come back to life, seeing people, you know, regain their lives. So, so there's a lot of, um, I guess, joy in working with this population as well. I think to some extent, if I'm honest, there might be some overlap with my own schemas and modes with this population as well. And, um, that, you don't have to answer do that. I know them already. <laughs> Well, yeah, and, and I think the fact that you pointed out probably the level of detail in the Schema yeah. Therapy for Eating Disorders book is probably a hint there. But, uh, yeah, I think I think probably there is an overlap there, and I think my own kind of uh, work on my own workaholism, my own, uh, you know, I think there is an overlap there between, I guess, burnout amongst mm -hmm. uh, those of us who are, who are working really hard, uh, probably working a bit too hard and... and uh, eating disorders is well, I'm so happy to hear that I'm so, I didn't there. expect that that um that you know the, the yeah you know I think it, it's a client group that can be difficult to work with but you've found I'm sure you have that but also you're able to see the positive affect side of that or you've found some joy as you say um in treating this client group and so I think that's that's awesome to hear and maybe uh, give the rest of us uh, something to look forward to <laughs> Did you fall into it or did you just kind of go? Is that what you would sort of, you know, yeah. to get involved with? Well, when I initially, the first service I ever worked in in the south of England uh, was a general adult mental health service and eating disorders were seen as part of that, those services. And I think I really found that fascinating and started attending courses. And then uh, I've been working in specialist eating disorder services ever since really uh, on and off. Um, and conducting research into eating disorders and so uh, and currently working in an inpatient unit uh, through the National Health Service uh, working with severe and enduring anorexia nervosa. And did you do did you do the old uh, sort of CBT uh, e training? Yeah yeah well I didn't yeah. do the formal training but I, I uh, worked with C used CBT for eating disorders for many years and then mm. uh, did the CBTE online training. Uh, yes, so absolutely, that was my background with this, working with this population. And, and of course, found that very early on that, uh, of course, when you work with eating disorders, you work with everything. You work with, you know, there's so much comorbidity in this population that um, very often, you know, the eating disorders isn't even the primary issue. Often there's so many different issues that you're working with simultaneously. Uh, and so I, I guess I became more interested in trauma work specifically mm. and integrating trauma work with, uh, with schema therapy and CBT mm. for eating disorders. And seeing a lot of those patients essentially as trauma patients. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of trauma, a lot of complex trauma and a lot of um, attachment difficulties, shall mm. we say, you know, a lot of uh, difficulties where, which are much more subtle um, and which require a lot of detective work to try and figure out what's going on. Mm. That's definitely been a, that's definitely been a theme in my practice, um, Susan. Um, it's, it's been there the whole time, I guess, since we got into schema, but recently, and I think it, um, eating disorders really touches this, 
where you can see the symptoms, like easily see the disorder and the symptoms. But when you take that attachment perspective with people, what you end up seeing, you just, you just kind of see it. Yes. You know, you kind of see what this is really about. Yes. Yes. Which might be that, you know, no one ever heard you ever. Yes. No one ever attuned to you in life or, and that's something that's interestingly not seen very much necessarily in mental health services. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, in fact, there's maybe even a little bit of a phobia in the eating disorders world about going there. I think there was so much emphasis in the past on blaming the parents that now there's a real anxiety about even looking at attachment issues, even looking at, I guess, what these factors are and cultural factors that affect parenting, which then affect uh, attachment. So, um, yeah. So, so, so Susan, I mean, there's going to be our listeners that, are, you know, listening to the program and some of people might be really sort of versed with eating disorders and some people not so much. And maybe, you know, might be delving in working with some clients with eating disorders. What are the basic schema therapy conceptualization methods or you know, maybe not methods, but the conceptualizations of eating disorders, you know, what sort of main modes yeah. might be? involved for you know anorexia versus bulimia and binge eating disorder generally i guess the most common modes that you might see with anorexia nervosa for example would be the over controller mode which is uh tends to be operating as an overcompensatory mode with most people um obviously a demanding parent mode tends to be very strong there's a kind of demanding or very strong guilt inducing parent mode uh, there's a lot of guilt in this population a lot of sense of guilt about i guess free floating guilt really people don't really know what they feel guilty about but they just carry this sense of guilt around with them uh, for being wrong for not being right for being so too it's that much critic just popping up all the time and just yeah. having to say and... yeah yeah often the guilt-inducing parent develops through more implicit messages. I mean, obviously, in some families, those messages are very explicit, but often it's more facial expressions, tone of voice, this sense of, of uh, I guess, you're a burden, you're a bit too much, you're, there's not enough space for you in this family, uh, or in, you know, and the parents' needs and, and feelings are, uh, I guess, taking precedence. Um, so we're looking at over-controller as being a, a key player uh, in overcompensating in both anorexia and bulimia nervosa, uh, and often in yep. binge eating disorder as well, but often it takes a different, um, I guess, manifestation in binge eating disorder. And then you've got detached mm-hmm. self-soother and impulsive child often in cahoots. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, of course, this can develop into a, a vicious cycle with bulimia nervosa where you, the person swings between this over-control um, and, and potentially compliant surrenderer that also gives away control. Uh, yes. So, And then you've got detached self-soother and impulsive child that are kind of trying to get what they can uh, in, mm-hmm. the, you know, in those moments. And that, that would be attached to binge eating and purging, of course. I've often thought about that with it, where you have the impulsive child and the self-soother um coming in and and sort of driving people towards addictions or eating or whatever it might be um as almost like having two voices in your head sort of saying yeah go on like you know so there's a part of them saying yeah yeah you deserve it and there's another part going and you could deal with this you know having a break from all this stress and there's sort of two forces in there sort of yeah yeah exactly and I, i like the i like to think of it as uh you know 
friends of mine have um, uh, two little kids and when they were very little, they would, you know, as a lot of us do as parents, we would try to um, stop our kids from eating a lot of bad foods or as, as we call them, you know, foods that, that will rot their teeth. And so they were really conscientious <laughs> with this and would stop, you know, would say to their kids, look, you know, we're just going to eat healthy foods. And then they would take them to... Um, birthday parties and these kids would just stand at the table they wouldn't go and play the party games they would just stand and eat all the, the lollies off the table and all the, the cakes and and so forth and you know I thought that, that's really uh, interesting the way it works really and I think it, it it does work that way with many of our clients with with uh, bulimia nervosa as well uh, and sometimes binge eating disorder where and and uh, binge purge uh, subtype of anorexia nervosa where it's like that impulsive child and detached self-soother are there kind of waiting in the wings waiting for their opportunity to get in there uh, they're waiting for the over controller to kind of run out of steam for a while uh, right. and uh, and then get in there and get and take and their chance loose. yeah take the chance because they know it, the over controller is coming back and it's only a matter of time and they've got to take the opportunity mm. when they can i have to ask this i have to ask about the impulsive child um we don't always address it so directly in schema and it, and it is implicated in eating disorders in certain eating disorders um is there anything you could say about that about what you've learned about the impulsive child in treating eating disorders and how to treat it i think um i would say a couple of things one is in some cases it's it's a kind of a backlash from i guess strong demanding parents strong over controller uh, a lack of freedom uh, you know so that this is a uh we don't necessarily need to deal with the impulsive child in terms of setting limits in that case, because really it's a, it's a case of there's too many limits there are already in place in terms of the over-controller mode. Uh, and it's about really working with the over-controller mode to give the, the child mode some space. Um, I think as well, many of our clients have come from very emotionally inhibited families. They've got the message that they're, needs and feelings are a little bit out of control or a little bit wrong um, and so they learn to be mistrustful of their own body signals and to um, to start to ignore their body signals to kind of override or shut down their interoceptive awareness and that then uh, I guess means that down the track it's very difficult for them to sense when they're hungry when they're not hungry they look they're very suspicious and they feel it's a bad thing uh to self-invalidation kind of feel yeah yeah and there's a lot of shame yeah. after binge yeah. eating a lot of sense of that that and yeah. that reinforces i guess that sense of yeah see i am out of control if i trust my body instincts that's what happens uh, so it, it can become quite a vicious cycle while you're here, like this is a question that you, Rob, you probably get the same question as well. Is often, you know, you get like um, a punitive, you know, parent or punitive critic mode and an over controller mode, and they can be very similar. And it'd be good to kind of get from your perspective, and you know, the audience really probably wants to hear this too. You know, what would you see in terms yeah. of those differences? I think that's a really, yeah. yeah, that's a really good question. I think that is a. A, a something that comes up a lot. I mean, I think um, if you think about it as the, the, the punitive parent or the, the, the punitive mode and the, the demanding mode are really internalized messages, you know, they're the echo from the past, if you like. Uh, so they're uh, the voice in the person's head that they carry around with them that, that I guess 
reflects the implicit and explicit messages that they've got in childhood from various places, might be parents, teachers, uh, you know. It's like an interject kind of thing, a sense of an interject, yeah. 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 Whereas, you know, the, the over-controller, in the case of, I guess, the, um, the, the inner critic, you would be looking at um, the flagellating over-controller being quite similar, where the person is hurting themselves, harming themselves. Um, but in that case, it's more of a, an action-focused mode. It's more designed. It has a function. So I would, I would split the two up quite distinctly that the, the inner critic modes don't actually have a function. They're just a kind of a, you know, they may have originally, the parents may have had good intentions yeah. or, or whoever it was that conveyed those messages, but they no longer have a function. They're just an echo. Whereas the coping modes very much have a, have a function. There is some reason that they are doing that to protect themselves. And this is where, you know, I guess it's quite important that if you start fighting an inner critic mode, and especially in the eating disorder population, I find this to be relevant, and it's actually a flagellating over controller mode. They're actually hurting themselves as a safety mechanism, mm. uh, which yeah. which kept them safe in some way in their family of origin. Then they're actually going to um, not respond well to that and actually feel more unsafe uh, when you fight that yeah. mode. Uh, so if that mode has a function, um, that would be a sign that it's more coming from a position of coping. Yeah. And then you need to treat it as such. Exactly. Um, exactly. Now, I have to ask you, one of the things, um, you know, and I've, I've done some workshops with you and, and sort of, you know, seeing your work. When I read the book, I was like, great. You know, we have all these new modes popping up. And it's one of the things in schema as the model proliferates into different areas um, that we see some, some nuanced modes. I, I have a word for them. I call them exotic modes. So sort of new modes that you don't see every day. So yeah, I love that. Um, <laughs> you know, so I know there's things, I'm looking at your book, I'm like, oh, there's a Pollyanna mode and there's, you know, could, could you talk to that? What what, yeah, what are yeah. some of the modes that you've kind of thought about as a sort of new-ish exotic modes? I guess, uh, I guess they're sub-modes in a way, aren't they? They're, they're kind of variations on the modes that we have already. And uh, yeah, the Pollyanna modes are really interesting one because it's it's really, I guess, toxic positivity, if you like. It's about um, the person needs to be optimistic, mm -hmm. even in the face of, you know, all these difficult things going on. And in doing so, they invalidate themselves, they invalidate other people by trying to be upbeat, by trying to be positive. Yep. And so how are um, you going, Susan? How are you going? How's it, how's it, how have you, you been lately? Oh, great. Everything's fantastic. You know, that. I mean, I know I'm, I'm very low weight anorexic, but, uh, you know, actually it doesn't affect me. I'm on top of the world. I know, you know, it, it, I'm not going to be affected by this. And this is, you know, I think this is the, 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 uh, the message, you know, we, an example of this um, is we had a, a lady who was admitted to hospital with uh, very low weight uh, anorexia nervosa, so so low, which was a BMI of 11, and she was, you know, really touch and go as to whether we could keep her alive. And when she moved in, she had streamers all over her bedroom, pink, uh, you know, bright pink bedspread. She had flowers. She had balloons. Uh, it was like wow. she she was in party mode. Like extreme positivity. Extreme positivity, and she was so upbeat. And when you look, so on on the old Beck's cognitive therapy, she'd be like, you know, doing well with the positive oh, thinking. Oh, she, and she stuff. wouldn't even register. Absolutely, and <laughs> and you know, for her, it was she had come from a actually a lovely family, really lovely family, but 
parents had been very stressed and I just didn't really have any emotional awareness or uh, emotional skills. And so she had from a very early age, I guess she had a, a, a very empathic temperament, picked up on everyone else's stress and pain and just taken responsibility for everyone else in the family without them explicitly asking her to do so. Of course, everyone was delighted with that because she was the one that she was really the Cinderella who kind of went around and did all the all the work in the house and looked after everyone, but in doing so completely neglected herself. And so, so just following what you were just saying about temperament, um, you know, it seems that there is a role of temperament in eating disorders. Um, you know, and I'm just curious to see, you know, how you see temperament, biological influences on schemas and, you know, in terms of the parental mismatch, just like yeah. you were mentioning there. How do you see that interacting with schema, you know, schema development and eating disordered behaviour? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's such an important point because uh, many people with eating disorders have a highly sensitive temperament. Uh, and if you if you've read the, um, I, I guess the papers on the orchid versus the the dandelion temperament, really, you know, yeah, yeah. many of our our clients with eating disorders are. Uh, Dan, are uh, orchids they're very empathic you know they can pick up on what's going on in, in a room who's feeling what before the, the people in the room know what they're feeling um and this is this is really really common in eating disorders uh you know we do know i guess from the the, the research that there we do know that there is our particular traits that are um very commonly linked with uh particular eating disorder manifestations mm. um but you know in my clinical work that's what i would see a lot is this sensitive temperament now if you get that yeah. match with somebody with a family that is emotionally inhibited or uh yeah. just doesn't really know how to attune but often and as i say in, in anorexic families um where i'm i'm working with a lot of severe and enduring anorexia nervosa at the moment many of these families most of the families are loving caring parents it's not you know that they are emotionally abusing or neglecting or uh, anything else their children it's that this lack of attunement so the child doesn't ever feel really seen or it's a heard. Key theme, isn't it? This is a very key theme. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, I use this analogy of, of chocolate cake because, well, in my world, everything comes down to chocolate cake, really. Um, and, you know, I, I think of it as a chocolate cake recipe that's been passed down through the generations. And somewhere in the past, you know, if you think about it in terms of intergenerational trauma, somewhere in the past, there was one of the ingredients was missing or more than one of the ingredients was missing. And then that recipe has just been passed on um, without that ingredient since that time. And, mm -hmm. you know, many of our clients are missing that key ingredient, which is that attunement. Uh, they haven't had enough of that. Their, their attachment has been good in so many ways, but the attunement has been missing. And with a dandelion child, you know, they can, they can often get through that in a way, but with, a, with an orchid, they're going to really struggle to get through that. And, you know, if, if you think about the, the bicarb soda, if, if, if you like, as the missing ingredient, and that's the attunement, you know, that cake's going to fall flat. And how do flat. you bring that in, Susan? I mean, can you describe for the listeners, how do you bring more of that attunement into, into the therapy relationship? 
I think first of all, I mean, when you when you raise this, if you raise this as an issue, often people don't know what you're talking about because they don't know what they haven't had. So it's it's hard for that to resonate at first. But I think it's about, you know, it's planting the seed, then coming back to it. And it's about, I guess, the most important thing is really being with them in the room, really helping them to feel like you really get them. And I think this is where, of course, on the one hand, we, you know, many of our treatments are about behavioral change. It's about, uh, you know, getting in there and, and, and trying to change the eating disorder behaviors. I think sometimes if you do that too fast, you know, then you just buy into, I guess, that role of being another demanding parent and you don't, mm. uh, um, or guilt-inducing parent, uh, and you're not really attuning to them. And we have to provide that missing ingredient at first because even if you try and do compassion-focused work with somebody who hasn't had this attunement, they're just paying lip service to it. They don't really know how to be compassionate to themselves in an emotional sense. It's just a concept. And so they have to really experience it through imagery, through... There's um, something beautiful about schema model in this way. Because, yeah, absolutely. You know, we can, we can always, when I first looked at it, I was like, that makes so much sense not to get into a fight with them about their coping behaviours, you know, in the beginning and, and just turn towards understanding them and dealing with that stuff and the schemas and the vulnerability and and the critic and, you know, the, the feeling side of it and really, really being there with that side of it. And, and then I think slowly turning your attention to the coping side um, and as a way of diffusing everything, you know, because you can get in those more rigid patterns of to and fro about the eating disorder. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's such an important point because you, you don't want to attune to the coping modes. You, you, you do want to understand the coping modes. You do want to get to know them and, and help them feel safe and, uh, and so forth. But you don't, when you're doing that attunement, you want to make sure you've got to that vulnerable child part. And many of our clients with eating disorders, again, they don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you know, when you talk about a vulnerable part, many of our clients, especially with restrictive anorexia nervosa, feel so far out of touch with their vulnerability that it's a surprise to them when it comes to the surface. Uh, and mm -hmm. so this is this is part of the, uh, the work really is introducing them to their own vulnerable child mm -hmm. and helping them to mm -hmm. see that their needs are normal, that their feelings are normal, that anyone would feel like this in these circumstances. Mm -hmm meet yourself here's a picture of you yeah yeah <laughs> you know, here you are absolutely introducing you to you yeah yeah that the yeah. goal of therapy is not to eliminate vulnerability and that's often the message that people have got yeah. you know is that and uh, and some of our treatments can inadvertently reinforce that mm. Uh, whereas we we're coming from a different angle of you know of course you feel depressed of course you feel anxious because you haven't got these key needs met and we need to get those needs met and these make key sure nutrients. yeah yeah mm. and in the case of helpless surrender just to come back to to some of the exotic modes as some you... more exotic modes <laughs> for us here yeah what's this matter I mean I think that's another one just to be aware of is sometimes with people who have this mode it can it's a pseudo vulnerability. It's it's not really the the mm. deeper level vulnerability, and so it's very mm. easy to get stuck in a I guess a rescuer role or savior role, which is not really mm. about attunement so much as as rescue. And if we have so a self sacrifice schema, we're going to be, you know, 
to be blind to that and walk straight into that mm-hmm. dynamic. So that's like a more of a re- resignation kind of victim like yeah, presentation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Often kind of present in a very helpless way. They're looking to be fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, you know, mm-hmm. um, they come back to you for solutions, but, but there's nobody there. There's no bottom to it though. There's no bottom. No, no. Like no. it's sort of like, it's there, but then it's another thing and another thing. But so it's a kind of, as you said, a, a pseudo vulnerability. Usually when you really touch the vulnerability and you attune, there's some opportunity for healing and holding that. Yeah. But, but it, you know, this sort of helpless surrender doesn't want to be held. Doesn't want, it doesn't want that attunement. It's probably also a less of a turn off as well. You know, that kind of sense of when you've got the, someone who's in that position, you're kind of like, a, you're, you're less empathic. Right, exactly. I, that's a really important, um, I guess, key there. Um, it's almost like a transference point. Like yes. if you're feeling that lack of empathy, it's sort of like, mm, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, at first... My empathy is telling me something. The, the first, I guess, counter-transference you're likely to feel is rescue. You'll feel like you want to jump mm-hmm. in and rescue the person. It's down the track a bit that you'll start to feel yeah. a bit trapped, cornered, because that's what this mode's job is, is to... I guess, you know, when you think about it, it's probably a very early attachment mode where mm. its job is to preve- prevent abandonment and to get other people to look after them. So it's looking for a new parent almost. I, my, mm. I'm not getting my parenting needs met. I need someone else to do it. And it's not really about recovery. It pays lip service to recovery, but it's more about finding a substitute parent. Mm. So and another mm. sign with this mode is if you talk about ending in therapy, this mode will go into meltdown. You know, it wants never-ending therapy. It's looking for a parent. It's not looking yeah. for recovery. Yeah. So I was going to sort of ask you a little about, you know, there's a, a contrast with um, changing effectively someone's behavior. So you want, you know, particularly if someone's really low BMI and there's a reality that they have to sort of put on some weight or change their exercise or, you know, sort of gain weight. Um but I guess there's this kind of, you know, sort of two contrasting ideas of you trying to be there or remaining caring and validating, um, but also sort of pushing for change. Yeah. You know, and I'm just interested how you think we can sort of position ourselves. So, you know, the kind of the figure telling them to eat and, you know, and squashing their autonomy, but at the same time, you know, being supportive and supportive in them, you know, gaining some improvements. Yeah, yeah. Weight-wise or in eating-wise. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is where it matters where the person is at in terms of their insight, in terms of their motivation and so forth, because until the person feels like you really get them, that they feel really understood by you and that you're really on their team, then it's going to be difficult for them to interpret anything you say in any other way other than, you know, you're also trying to get me to gain weight. Um, and yeah. and then to start resisting that often in very passive ways. So um, mm. by paying lip service to following the meal plan, but, you know, the weight doesn't change by falsifying the weight so forth. You know, this is suspicious over controller stuff where, you know, there's this kind of idea of control or be controlled. And so I guess, you know, it's really about, getting on their team and them feeling like you're and and then reminding them of that you know so when it comes to those i guess decision points especially around low weight anorexia nervosa 
then you're really talking about, you know, for example, and they need to be hospitalized, then you're, you're, you're really needing to set a limit in that case, which is around their safety. Now it's also around, mm. you know, you can also use, I guess, the, the regulations and the, the, um, you know, the expectations of the system itself. But um, ultimately, it's, a, it's about our relationship, you know, it, it matters to me yeah. whether you're healthy or you know whether you're unwell it matters to me whether um mm. that that you're safe you know and how powerful has that been for your patients that that you coming in with that sort of like i actually really do care I actually it absolutely matters to me that we get somewhere with this yeah yeah i mean it, it's a surprise to them generally you know it is a surprise and there will be modes that resist because all the different modes have very different agendas and i think so it's about i think really working. you're getting paid you're getting paid susan to matter yeah like well exactly kind of yeah well yes there is that absolutely um although you know i, I can say to people in my nhs job well you know actually I, I get paid the same whether I see you or not, you know, yeah. that's and the reality. And I could reality. be getting paid a whole lot more not to be <laughs> yes. here. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I think it's really for them to feel like you're on their team. And I think the more that you, you develop that relationship. Um, and so on the, on the, you can use, I guess, empathic confrontation um, and mm. to say things like, you know, well, on the one hand, there's a side of me that just wants to go with this. There's a side of me that just kind of feels like, I don't want you feeling uncomfortable. I don't want you, yeah. you know, and on the other hand, there's this part of me that really sees this is part of you locked away and suffering that once again gets kind of sidelined misses out on getting her needs met misses out mm. on having a life you know she's missed her whole childhood i don't want her missing her adult life as well uh you know that kind of thing where it's sort of you know i'm on her side i'm i'm advocating for her so i know these coping modes have an agenda mm. and i'm going to work with them and make sure they feel safe enough mm. so that your healthy adult can take over and be in control i think it's also important for the coping modes to be heard and for them not to feel like they're going to be eliminated, that they are, yeah. they hold important traits. They hold part of the client's character in a, currently in a survival function and they can be transformed. Those traits can return to that, to, to fulfill the function that they were meant to fulfill in that person's life. Mm. So there's such a fusion between, you know, with the client and their controller or their yeah. punitive oh, yeah. side. So they're used to that mode talk to be able to step back and, but also within you, you, yourself as a therapist, I, I mean, I've done some limited amount of work with eating disorders and always found, you know, I needed to kind of calm my own coping modes or, you know, just that be patient and be weird rather than do too yeah. a lot of the time with clients and, you know, definitely. I mean, you know, it's it, easy to get into, there's nothing over controller loves more than a big debate, which will take up the whole mm. session and, and, um, yeah. prevent any any kind of vulnerability from coming to the surface and i think as you say it's about us being connected to our own vulnerability our own healthy selves and not getting drawn into that but just really just really i guess taking that meta level of just noticing what's going on and which modes i, I keep the mode map on the table all the time so yeah. we're always aware of which modes coming up now what is this uh you know because the modes hate some of the coping modes hate the mode map being on the table <laughs> <laughs> you know, they don't want to mentalize. They just want to, well, it is. you know, yeah, but. Um, the conceptualization is so important. It is. It really is everything in schema. 
not everything, but almost everything, like coming back to that. Well, it absolutely is. And I think given that, especially the over-controller doesn't want to be seen as a mode and is quite outraged at the idea that it's a mode, <laughs> you know, keeping it. It's not a mode, it's reality. It's exactly, exactly. Then keeping mm. that on the table, you know, means that over time, you know, and we want it to be, we, we want the client to realise that that is a part of them. We all have parts, you know, it's not pathologizing them or, uh, you know, making them feel that um, that this is a bad part of them, that actually in, it does hold a lot of determination and strength. And we want to, I guess, really praise that mode for all it's done and its, its survival function. So at the start of this piece, we were talking about, and you said something really interesting, and, and that's just something I really loved about your, um, doing your course, um, which, which actually is, um, the online version is coming up soon for those that are interested um, on what's it going to schema therapy training online.com. So end of the month, we managed to talk Susan into, you know, working tirelessly and getting all the materials up on an online course. That's absolutely amazing. And I can't wait to, to, um, get the opportunity to share that with everybody. But one of the things that you do in your course, which I hadn't seen done yet in schema is that you kind of mapped, um, intervention possibilities and the process of schema therapy onto the stages of change model. Uh, could you say something about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is where it's it's really about breaking down where the person is at in terms of which modes are dominant and working with those specific modes at different points, not trying to push our own agenda. So if we come in too early, for example, with behavioral work, um, obviously we need behavioral work sufficiently for the person to um, be safe and to be able to attend and, and take in the information. Um, but if we if we are too gung ho with our own agenda uh, and not really tuning in to where the client's at in terms of their own stage of change, bearing in mind the stage of change can be shifting backwards and forwards all the time, uh, that it's about bringing all the modes on board with us to each, I guess, stage from kind of pre-contemplation to contemplation, to action, um, to, to kind of a maintenance phase. And, and if any modes get left behind, going back to get them and going back to find out what, they're, what, they, what they want to tell us and what, what they're afraid of. What their resistance is, yeah. what's, the, what's going on, yeah. yeah. And what about, I guess, as you talk about this, I start to think about a stage where you do become more focused on behaviour change in eating disorders. And thinking about the old sort of training in CBT, E and... How, how do you see that coming together? Is there a role for some of this sort of CBTE behavioural focus within schema? How do you see that coming? I know you've only got like two minutes, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, um, uh, yeah. Uh, so I guess in a nutshell, um, absolutely. I mean, I think CBTE, I think also uh, brief st strategic therapy has a, a huge potential in this area. Both of them potentially can be inter integrated into the um, schema therapy model, and be you can kind of look at those diff the CBTE model from a mode perspective. That's something that we'll cover in the course. Um, but really, it's about applying those those um, strategies when the client's ready. So you know, you might try you and then have to retreat and then come back and try again and then retreat you know and so you might have to break it down into even smaller goals um, but you do want to do that behavioral work uh, and I think I would start with you doing it through imagery and um, actually using that as a way of working through what 
what function are these eating behaviours playing in the person's life in terms of unmet needs? And a lot of that can be, I guess, rehearsed and, and worked through in terms of imagery rescripting as well. So you would, you would set, I mean, essentially be behavioural targets that might be very similar to CBT-E, um, but then also bring in the schema strategies of uh, mental rehearsal, image, you know, pattern breaking imagery. Yeah, yeah. You know, to start to work through the barriers to, in, you know, eating behaviour change. Right, exactly. I mean, I think the important thing as well is just to be aware that clients will come to you at different stages. Some people will have had you know, many years of CBT already and they're looking for something different. And it may be that they need longer schema work before they can come back to those strategies and work on those strategies again. Um, for other people, you know, they might be able to actually eliminate a lot of their eating behaviours with the CBTE work, but then there's still a lot of deeper level, uh, I guess, um, schemas and so forth, which are going to um, put them at risk of relapse. And so we need to work on the schema stuff at the end. So it really is about adjusting it to the client. We do want to change the behaviors as soon as we can, but what often happens is if you just solely focus on that is that other, other behaviors will, will come up instead. So other rituals or self-harm or alcohol that, yeah, will just take its place. Yeah. So if so that's, yeah, yeah. you know, you, you might eliminate the eating behavior, but then, but then you've got this seesaw mm -hmm. effect with just other detached self-soother impulsive so sort of a balancing yeah. act of pushing for a little bit of change or as much as is possible but being able to quickly you know pivot away from that and actually keep keep with the you know the schema based emotion focused work therapy relationship and then pushing again and sort of finding the balance right exactly and i think especially for people who have a trauma history you know one thing that ha that you know people across the world struggle with when they're working with eating disorders is you know you you, as soon as they gain weight, they're back in their bodies. With eating disorders, it's it's really important to do the body work and to help people to tolerate being back in their bodies and mm. to, in order to process the trauma because that's where the trauma is. It's not in their heads, mm. it's in their bodies. And that's why they're afraid to gain weight because they're afraid of being in touch with the trauma, Feeling. the attachment, mm. uh, distress, all of those I guess, old memories that they carry around in their bodies as uh, sensations. I was going to also just bring the conversation to peer-related uh, issues. Because, you know, I mean, possibly it's a stereotype, but, you know, often you see a lot of uh, possible contagion within eating disorders, mm -hmm. you know, and peer-related issues, you know, the kind of, and, you know, you, know, you see the stuff on Facebook where, you know, um, you know, sort of pro anorexia sites and things like that, but probably more on a peer related issue, just at, you know, say at, you know, school or work and sort of stuff. You know, what, how would you conceptualize um, issues related to contagion? You know, I guess the same thing might go with self harm or suicidal ideation too. Yeah. But do you see, yeah. is that a, a big part of the pr process, especially when it starts or? Absolutely. I mean, certainly there are particular schools um, which where, it, you know, you see that this there is a strong culture of, of thinness and perfectionism um, and where um, young girls in particular, but also, also men um, feel compelled to compete with each other. And I think it's kind of over-controller culture that we live in. You know, it's this, it's over-controller is a mode which is, uh, I guess, 
pervasive in our culture. Our, our culture is based on the values of productivity, success, uh, and so forth. And this yeah. is, you know, and and an appearance. And of course, this mm. just kind of buys into that. Uh, this this um, I guess tendency to judge yourself on the basis of thinness. And so, you know, it's very common for um, within schools, within peer groups, for people to start competing with each other and become very fused yeah. with that way of seeing themselves and judging themselves. And then a lot of people, once they join that, their kind of eating disorder, I guess, community, they're constantly yeah. in touch with each other, texting messages about, you know, mm. comparing and competing and mm. it becomes... Uh, you know, a, a real uh, way of evaluating your own self-worth within that community yeah, and that just agree. reinforces it. And often as well, we're talking about people who don't necessarily feel like they fitted in to their, mm. to their um, peer group at school or whatever they might feel like. You know, for example, they grew up in a... Um, a nice example, I don't know if you've seen on Netflix, I Am Maris. Uh, it's a lovely uh, documentary. Sure. And the uh, the lady who had anorexia nervosa, she talks about you know growing up in a in a country school where there's a lot of sports, and she wasn't really a sporty kid and didn't feel like she kind of fitted in. And you know, I mean, that's a typical story, really, is people feeling like they don't fit in, or they might kind of have more of an Asperger's type pattern or be on the autistic spectrum um, and not fit in for one reason or another, you know, there are various reasons, but then they're trying to feel like they're part of a community. And then once mm. they join that eating disorder community, it's difficult to leave because it, it's, it's where they feel like wow. they belong. Getting the so relatedness needs met as well mm. in yeah. some way. Exactly. The needs are getting met, yeah. Yep. Wow, feeling connected. Now, we're gonna, we're gonna wind things up in a, in a second, but I have to ask this question I've been uh, working on. Crystal ball question for you, Susan, okay? So, you know, you've been working on this now for a good 10 or 15 years, like really, really honing in on uh, eating disorders and schema therapy approach. Um, you know, if you could go back 10 years, all right, as, as a therapist and have a, ha have a sort of discussion with your 21-year-old self, um, what would you tell your 21-year-old self about, about treating eating disorders? What would be the message to yourself about the journey ahead? Um, I, I think I would... <laughs> tell myself i think it's a really great question i, I think um thank you i've been dreaming that up for, for like <laughs> yeah, a that's month. a good one that's a really good one uh, i think it's about not getting too caught up you know we're we're very uh, fixated at the moment in our uh in the psychology world in manual based treatments and i think in some ways that's an impediment to being with uh, our clients. I think it's important to get that stuff. You know, it's it's important to know the treatments, to to know what's involved in CBTE for eating disorders, and to have that model in your head and and schema therapy for eating disorders. But I think really what makes a difference with these clients is being with them. And I think when you're really with somebody, you really and you really start to get it and do your detective work and really put all your energy into that relationship, really getting them, then it brings out a creativity in us that makes it, I guess, exciting to be working in the area, but also it brings the therapy to life for the client in a way that mm. makes sense for them rather than us following techniques or protocols because it's this mode or it's mm. that mode. And so I need to use this technique. Yeah. You can really... Page 16. Page 16. Page 16, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's more about 
you know what? I think we're going to try something different here because I think this is what yeah. you need. And if you're really in tune with someone, then, you know, then, then you can do that. I think the other main thing I would say is focusing in on the body. You know, it's all about being in the body. It's, it's, you know, if the more cognitive you get, I think, you know, um, uh, there's a, an Einstein quote, we can't solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. And I think, you know, if we try and fix our problem, you know, but many of our treatments are really mm. based on that over control of thinking our way What's out of things. Head? You can't think your way out of yeah. an eating disorder. Think your way out of, yeah. And if you do, yeah. you'll relapse. It's, it's, that's my experience. Mm -hmm. And I think you need to get in the body. You need to work with emotions and, and I guess connection and vulnerability, or it's not, you know, the healing is only happening at a behavioral level, not really at, at a, at a deeper heart level. And I think, you know, what we're really about is not just changing the eating behavior. We're really about helping this person to have a life where they have joy and connection and love and, and warmth. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, I, I think and that's, ultimately you're having a sense of getting the needs met. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's time for the uh, schema therapy staff room to close. I think we need to sign off, but I think um, we need to go and do some work people. <laughs> yeah. Or go home. Um, see some we're different different uh, time zones and different different uh, countries um, and different parts of the world. Um, Susan, thanks for coming today. It's really nice to have a chat and shoot a fat with Rob and me. Thank you very and, much um, for inviting me. It's absolutely lovely to see you both again. Absolutely. And if you're interested in this and you want to do an online course, have a look at our website, www.skimwithevertraining online.com plug plug but it's serious it's a fantastic course it's you know and in these courses that we're creating are small you know bite-sized lectures and skills videos and stuff that's in engaging so we you know if you're interested have a look at that we've got a couple more uh podcasts coming up don't we rob we do yep months and weeks we've got some exciting stuff uh and um and, look, yeah, and, and, and we always love hearing from listeners about new topics as well we'd love to get that feedback loop so um if there's a topic or something that you're interested in um do reach out to uh info at schematherapytraining.com thanks guys thanks susan thanks rob okay see you guys later Thank susan have, a, have fun you're about to start Adios. work we're about to go to sleep um <laughs> see you next time see you next time bye see you thanks for inviting bye. me